A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Don Fifield of The Guardian and by Daniel Storey, the author and columnist. And then there were none. Liverpool are not invincible. Manchester City are still in arrears. Defining match between them or just another drama? Can City make up a four-point gap or will Liverpool bounce back? Whatever the answers, we're in for the perfect title race. Fine margins until the end of the season. It's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah, and it was an intriguing game. Um, it was fine margins um, at the Etihad Stadium with the, the ball just about staying out, the 1.12 centimetres, wasn't it, daft? Something like that. Hitting the, Liverpool hitting the post, City hitting the post and it going in. But we expected that because those they are the two outstanding teams in the division. I know Spurs are, are up there and, and still got a chance, but, but those are the two stellar teams. Um, and it has provided us with a, a dramatic title race now. I think, looking back, I think City were 14 points clear at the same time last year. And if you go back to the year before, Chelsea were seven points clear as well. So we've actually got two teams, possibly three, going head-to-head, um, giving it a go. And, it, yeah, the, you know, one team slips up, it'll, it'll fuel the, the ambitions of the other for the remainder of the campaign. It's, it's going to be intriguing, it'll be tight. And it'd be exciting. And you know, once the FA Cup's out of the way, I suppose Liverpool will be judged by how they bounce back from that defeat, you know, albeit a narrow one. In that context, how important is the next game at Brighton? It's huge. I mean, Jurgen Klopp will, will tell his side that was only three points, that was only one game. And he'll also tell them, I think, that they kind of earned the right to lose against Manchester City and still, as they are still, be on title favourites. So, yeah, he will plead that there is no drama, you know, that that was a 90 minutes of pure theatre, but that aside, they have to go back to doing exactly what they have been doing all season. And, and quite frankly, if they play as they did, albeit in defeat against Manchester City, against 14 or 15 other Premier League teams, they'll beat those 14 or 15 Premier League teams, and that's all they need to do. Um, it is entirely still in their own hands, but, but yeah, we, we, we judge these games by how teams respond to them, because we know that exactly with City you know they they lose to Crystal Palace at home nobody saw that coming and then it kind of spirals into a what's happening have we lost our aura uh, and that can you know can very easily happen if you're not careful. Mm, I suppose in the modern world in which we live uh, both media wise and in football society there's got to be a scapegoat somewhere and I suppose a lot of the Liverpool fans are blaming Lovren for his performance at the Etihad. Um, are we in a situation where someone like Joe Gomez becomes a better player when he's not actually in the team because of the injury? 
Well, I think we all know that Joe Gomez is outstanding. I mean, he's he's a big loss to Liverpool when he's when he's been out injured. He's he he was a fantastic player for England in the in the autumn internationals as well, and um, a key player for the future of the the national team. So, I, I don't think I don't think that's revelatory. Um, I mean, Love Lovren. Well, he said he was the one that was saying that Liverpool could go invincible. He doesn't help himself. He really does he? doesn't. Uh, I mean, we should, as journalists, we should be, uh, we should be welcoming such outlandish statements, as as indeed he said in the in the summer when he said he was a world class defender. But look, I just thought the intensity of that game was was something else. I, I thought City were were brilliant at stopping Liverpool from playing. Uh, there was that one moment where the front three in the first half combined for Liverpool and they, and they in the old style where they, they all clicked and that's when Mane hit the post and, and the ball almost went in off the rebound. Um, but other than that, if you look at Fernandinho, if you look at company and stones at centre-half, you know, Laporte doing a passable job at left-back to, and that's an area where City have been so weak recently without Mondi and, and teams have exposed them. But they... they, they managed to contain Liverpool even on that flank and it was it was a reminder that City aren't just all about dazzling and you know the pizzazz they can actually be a hard difficult team to break down as well um, and there was only really a couple of moments in that match where Liverpool looked their old selves. Mm. You're at the game uh, Dan uh, for the iPaper um, by the way how on earth did you get Sherlock Holmes in your intro you can tell us later um, Give us an idea and a flavour of the of that atmosphere. And does that does that you know you've seen a lot of city recently? Has that was that a change to normal business, if you like? Yeah, I think it was a change. It was startling to me how early before the game fans arrived. I know with an eight o'clock kickoff and you know a ground half an hour walk from the town centre, it kind of makes sense to to hang around and come to the ground early. But it did feel different. It did feel. Um, a slightly more special atmosphere perhaps than we're used to and it does also feel like Manchester City and Liverpool is this kind of new Premier League rivalry maybe the new big Premier League rivalry purely because of you know not rivalry based necessarily on history but purely on on you know on the talent of the two teams um so yes it, it did feel different and um it didn't feel different because Quite often in these examples, managers ask for the fans to be bigger or the club ask, demands that fans... Well, the 12th man Exactly, routine, that kind yeah. of cliche. But actually there was none of that before the game. The game spoke for itself. The hype spoke for itself. And, and the game spoke for itself as well. So often these games are letdowns. But, mm. but that, you know, that didn't happen. It did match up to everything that we, we thought it could be. But yeah, I think, I think City fans realised that this was a win-or-bust scenario, effectively. The, the first half an hour was quite strange in that City knew they couldn't concede first, but it was as almost as if that Mane shot off the post made him realise we can't be passive here, we have, mm. to, we have to impress ourselves upon the game, and if we do that, we can win it. Mm. In terms of rivalries, um, is this just going to be a rivalry for the ages or is it something that we might be diverted by for a couple of years? I'm interested to see whether the rivalry is sustained, you know, if Pep and, and, and Klopp aren't at their respective clubs. I mean, that, that is a rivalry that was forged in Germany um, and has, has been brought to the Premier League and imposed on the Premier League. They are the two, you know, stellar teams, as we said earlier. But, you know, yeah, it does, it fades in and out, doesn't it? Um, so we'll see. I mean, <laughs> it wasn't long ago that we were talking about Brendan Rodgers and I don't know Pellegrini possibly being a rivalry when Liverpool and City had the uh, and and the Chelsea had that three-way tussle at the top of the table. 
Um, but there's something about this, the way that both of these clubs have been long-term planning and they've, they've brought the, I mean, Pep obviously slightly sooner with the, not least with the resources that they, they spent last, last summer in 2017 to, to, to have that incredible season last year and everything about the progress that Klopp has made at Liverpool to try and eat into that lead has been wonderfully impressive so far. So it does have, you know, potentially it could it could sustain itself for for a while longer. But let's just see what happens when those when those managers depart. Also, it's Liverpool have beautifully filled that Manchester United void as well for City, haven't <laughs> yeah. they? Because I think if Manchester if, if Manchester United were let's say in Spurs' position in third or pushing for second and first, I think the Manchester City and Liverpool. I think I honestly feel like it would feel like more of a three-horse race if it was yeah. Manchester United rather than Tottenham, simply because of the rivalries between the yeah. three clubs. Whereas, yeah, Liverpool have kind of filled perfectly filled that Manchester United void. Mm. Do you think English football needs a successful Liverpool club simply because of what it represents, that the tradition of it, and the sheer vibrancy of the atmosphere that their fans can create? As a neutral. Yes, yeah. Um, you know, I'm not a supporter of a Premier League club and the Premier League is more exciting when it has a good Liverpool team in it. Um, not least because there has always been in the last 10 years that faint sense that they might implode as well as you know, mm. explode positively. They might implode upon themselves and, and for that implosion to be spectacular, they need to get into a position where they can win things and fail to do so. It's, you know, the cliche of Spursy is exactly the same. It doesn't work unless they get themselves in a position to win those trophies. But yeah, absolutely. I think I would rather have four or five teams in a Premier League title race, but that seems entirely unsustainable. It's, it feels great to have potentially three still in kind of early to mid-January. Mm. In terms of lessons from you can draw from that one defeat of the season so far, um, balance in the midfield three, maybe? Yeah, I possibly went a bit cautious. I think Fabinho's obviously come on leaps and bounds of late, um, and, and possibly he might look at the back at that and wonder whether... He could have started with him. I mean, he did make a big impact when he came on. That he could see the whole tempo of the Liverpool team and their passing, you know, raised when when Fabinho was introduced. But it was so tight. He's not going to look at that and think, "Oh, I've I've got my tactics completely wrong here." If the if the ball had been slightly to to the right and Mane's shot goes in, or you know, John Stones doesn't stretch that to clear the ball off the line seconds later, then that's a completely different scenario. I I I think he'll be really level-headed about the nature of the defeat and he'll, he'll look at uh, the chance to go to Brighton which isn't e- an easy fixture and Brighton don't lose many home games mm. um, but Liverpool have, have excelled at the Amex in the recent past he'll look at that as an opportunity just to, to restore some momentum you know this time last year when City lost their first league game of the season at Liverpool they went on another unbeaten run, which was only ended when they lost the derby, when you know the tight was as good as there anyway. That's Liverpool's next task. They've got to get back on back on the bite and, and, and make sure that they that they are now unbeaten for let's say eight, ten more matches. And if they survey the scene then, they could they could have a healthy lead at the top. Mm. When you judge players, you look at how they perform in the biggest matches. Um, Aguero for instance mm. he was really he just adapted to the pace of that game and the intensity of it and and you know what about Fernandinho that was an 11 out of 10 performance wasn't it? Yeah it was he's um, I think we probably overlooked even last season 
just how important he is as that kind of security blanket to mm. Manchester City's defence, especially at a time when it's not at the top of its game itself. You know, they haven't kept a clean sheet, um, I think, since, you know, what was it? Was it West Ham, I think? A long time ago. Yeah, yeah, a long time ago. Um, 12 games, 12 or 13 games, I think. So it's not at his best, and Fernandinho manages to protect that almost by himself. Um, he did have a lot of help from Bernardo Silva last night. I thought he was astonishing his energy levels and his pressing higher up the pitch, and that, that makes things easier for Fernandinho. Um, but yeah, I think he, he's probably Manchester City's most important player because there's no one else that replaces exactly what he does. And that's why Guardiola wanted a defensive midfielder last summer. That's why he was so keen on Jorginho and so keen on Fred because... You know, Fernandinho's 33 years old, he played a World Cup, he had a long season last season, he's already had one little injury and I think, you know, I honestly believe, no hyperbole to say that if he gets injured, Liverpool will win the title. I honestly think it's that simple. It's a bit strange though to think that City and, and Pep Guardiola saw Jorginho as a potential replacement for Fernandinho because Fernandinho's he's got energy and he's, mm. got a, he's a dy- dynamic defensive midfielder whereas... Jorginho just seems quite passive and, and it's all about simple simple passing and I know I know we haven't seen the best of him yet because we haven't seen a proper Maurizio Sarri team at Chelsea yet but it doesn't seem a like for like um, and Fred likewise yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean maybe there's potential there but mm. but you're right when Fernandinho doesn't play I mean you know they they could get away with it in the past but the, you know the Palace result in many ways showed that if you don't have that defensive midfielder who to to set a, t- a tempo and set the tone in the middle of the park, even even a team like Palace can overrun you, mm-hmm. and when you manage the city. But you're right, Bernardo Silva was magnificent, but also Raheem Sterling was, was sensational again and almost on the quiet. I know people concentrate on Sane scoring the, the winning goal, but Sterling's runs from deep and possession of the ball and 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 just the, the cuteness of his passing when when to release. Uh, to his to fellow forwards was absolutely fantastic, brilliant player. Mm. Yeah, you, you're back uh, at the Etihad for the for the League Cup semi final, which was the greatest win in the world. Is going to be a, a shoe in against Burton. Um, let's one uh, pay due tribute to a club like Burton ended up in in a, in a last four like that, uh, but also put it in the context of City's season. Is the League Cup the one they can afford to give away? Yeah, it is, although having reached the semi-final stage and, and heavy favourites to get to the final, um, Guardiola will, I presume, play a high, heavily weakened team against in both legs against Burton, certainly presuming that they get half the job done in the first leg. Um, and he will... I honestly think after, the, after that Liverpool victory, he will tell his team, we need to win every game we play now. Take aside the Champions League because... That, that at some point could become their priority if they do drop off in the Premier League. But I think he will tell them, we, we've shown we are good enough to beat the form team in the country. Mm. And, the, and the form team in the country who didn't... Liverpool didn't bottle it. They didn't not turn up. Manchester City beat them fair and square. Mm. And he will say, if we can beat them, we can beat any team in any competition. And, and he's, he's right to. Mm. Busy times for Tottenham. I suppose we do... You know, they have been almost overlooked in all this debate that we've... Well, well we've done the same thing, haven't we? Um, a really busy week ahead, uh, you know, once the FA Cup's out of the way, uh, they've got the League Cup semi-final against Chelsea and then Manchester United, which is going to be the Pochettino show, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, I suppose the fact that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer started so well, uh, albeit against substandard opposition, 
um, has taken a bit of the focus away from Pochettino and his and his future. I, I'm I'm still not convinced that he he'd uh, he'd go there. To be honest, I, I suspect there may be bigger overtures that he finds harder to turn down from Spain when he does end up leaving Tottenham Hotspur. But Real Madrid. Yeah, I think so. I think I think. Uh, yeah, I think then it becomes a choice as to whether he goes to a club that fire managers after one or two seasons, or whether he can go to Old Trafford and, and then and build a maybe a long term project. But then there's also the Spurs project that is ongoing, and the the dynamics of that change when they're in the the redeveloped White Hart Lane, and he may look at that and think the potential is there to to take them to the next level, and you know the next level is winning Premier League titles at Spurs that he's done so well already uh, it's a, it's a, it is a difficult few days for, for, for them um, the focus in the the Chelsea game unfortunately will be a lot on the sports supporters and, and what happens in the stands um, as a result of you know recent events at, at Chelsea so you know hoping that people take their sensible heads to that match and it doesn't it isn't sort of ruined for the wrong, you know, by by repeats of the anti-Semitic chanting that we've heard on occasion of late. Um, but that's a big test. It's a big test for, for Spurs against the Chelsea team, team who actually are struggling at the moment. So it's an opportunity for Tottenham as well. Mm, what do you make of Spurs, uh, Daniel? You know, I was amazed, to be perfectly honest, about that. You know, the way that they succumbed to Wolves and they seem to have got back into their stride pretty quickly um, how good can they be? I think on their on their day they are as good as anyone which sounds like a cliche but it's absolutely true uh, in a one-off contest I think they can they can dominate any team if it, if it clicks um, I think in the, in the context of a, of a title race and even top four race it's very hard for us to kind of take a step back and appreciate the bigger picture of how far clubs have come because if they achieve their goals in that particular season we call it a success and if they don't achieve those goals we call it a failure which is in the case of Tottenham is an absolute nonsense because if you look at quite how far Pochettino has taken that club with comparatively scant resources um, it's it's the standout job in the top half of the Premier League over the last five years it really is um, his development of players such as Harry Kane in terms of his all-round play of Deli Ali of Christian Eriksen and, and then and then bringing on players that maybe weren't quite at that stellar level mm-hmm. is is unsurpassed I honestly believe that but um, the reality is for him is that he will be judged against Manchester City and against Liverpool however unfair that seems because that's the that's how far they're punching above their weight and and yeah and the reality is if, if they finish third this season don't win the FA Cup don't win the League Cup and go out in the Champions League quarterfinals people will say Pochettino's failed which is absurd really. mm. so in that context Dom is this a big January for Daniel Levy as well <sighs> I just don't see them doing any major business in, in, in January it's just not in their nature and uh, yeah, towards the end of the month, when you know the, the half of that team realised that they've were well, reminded that they've been playing in a an FA, sorry a World Cup semi-final stroke final stroke third fourth place playoff, um, and they haven't stopped since. There will be some weary legs again and weary minds, possibly more more to the point. Um, but I don't. It's it's a it's a similar it's the same problem. Are they bringing players in in January? 
they've got to be able to get, walk straight into that first team. And A, those players may not are unlikely to be available in January because Tottenham's first team are at such a high level now. And B, they'll cost an absolute arm and a leg at mid-season. So I'd, 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 be, I'd be surprised if anything major incoming ha- um, happens with, with Spurs. And hopefully Daniel Levy can can convince Maurizio Pochettino that, OK, look, we're making progress on the stadium. We'll be there soon. We'll be there soon. And, and then in the summer, the game changes and, and you'll, have, you'll have more scope to, to operate in that market. Pochettino may look at it and not want to disrupt things as well, of course. He may, I mean, he, he had the say in the transfer policy in the summer. It wasn't just Daniel Levy making all these decisions. If Pochettino had really agitated, he could have... I'm sure you could have forced even Daniel Levy's hand into to entering that market. But maybe the people weren't out there that he wanted. Maybe they'd become available in the summer. Mm. Yeah, different strokes, different folks. If you look at Chelsea, different business model. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at the, the signing of uh, um, Pulisic. Uh, coming in for £58 million, going straight back to Dortmund. Uh, possibility that that would trigger Hudson-Odoi going to Bayern. They're talking about... 30 million, Chelsea want 40. Um, is that a great business model or is it a sign that everything is wrong with English football at a certain level? I don't, I'm not sure if those two things need to be mutually exclusive. <laughs> I think it probably is a pretty good business model for Chelsea. And, um, no. 300, 398 million yeah. profit over the last and, few and years. And several Premier League titles. Um, so it's, it's not as if this is not you know, this is not profit over progress. This is the managing to achieve both in their eyes. I think it is, you know, I'd, I'd call it a shame um, because I think for players like Callum Hudson-Odoi, it would be brilliant to see them progress at Chelsea. And I, I strongly suspect that if, if Hudson-Odoi and Pulisic were in opposite situations, then Chelsea might well be buying an 18-year-old from Borussia Dortmund that they thought was brilliant and allowing a 20-year-old who had come through their academy to go out on loan. I, I, I think that probably would happen. It's just how this model operates. But if they can then get £40 million for Callum Hudson-Odoi and therefore have paid a net £17 million or whatever for Pulisic and consider him a better player, it's hard to criticise the logic of that. I just don't particularly like the morality of it, I have to say. And I think, I think the, the, the loan farm model will soon be ended by new loan regulations that are designed to stop exactly what they're doing. And I think that would be good for the game in general. I think it'd be good for those players who are in that farm. And I, I think it might well end up being good for Chelsea if it means they focus on on just doing, you know, just the first team. Mm. In the short term, they're not going to change, are they, Dom? No, no. And as you, you've made the, the, mentioned the number there, 398 million. Uh, the only way to look at it, I think, and we have to recognise that there is a certain well, quite a lot of frustration within that Chelsea academy that their players they are developing, that they feel are ready for the first team at Chelsea are not getting opportunities at Chelsea. Understandably, that frustration is, is, is building up and they see a Christian Pulisic coming in at a large fee. Regardless of whether he is a success or not, they feel that Callum Hudson-Odoi could do a similar job in the first team. But for whatever reason, whether it's a lack of faith in the current from the current manager or, or because of the short-termism at senior level in terms of the coaching staff and management, they don't feel as if they can take a risk on a young player. That's just the reality of it. We've seen the treatment of 
Ruben Loftus Cheek is very similar. Should he actually force the issue? I know Sarri saying Loftus -Cheek, he's not, not going. Why, why should he? He's playing. He, he's actually playing now. I think at the moment uh, of Chelsea's performances over the last six to eight weeks, uh, Loftus Cheek has been one of their better players. Uh, it, it will come to the stage where he has to play him in the Premier League, not least because William and Pedro are now injured. So there is an opportunity there for him to play. Uh, and I think I think there's no reason for Loftus-Cheek to force the issue at the moment. In the summer, it's different because he'll have two years left on his contract and then when does he you know, when does he say to them, well, I need to be a first-team regular now or I'm going to do what Cullen Hodgson-Madoy is doing and agitate or make it known that I'm, I'm willing to leave. But my point was, really, that we shouldn't look at this Chelsea Academy as a as a problem because are Chelsea's academy producing young English players who are going into the professional game and excelling? Yes, they are. They're not necessarily doing it at Chelsea, but they are doing it in other English clubs, top flight clubs, championship, lower level, but they're also potentially doing it to Bundesliga clubs as well. That talent will come through. If it's good enough, it will still reach the top. It just won't necessarily be with Chelsea. You know, in years to come, they may. It's not ludicrous that they've got an interest in, say, Nathan Ake, for example. You know, Dutch international. They sold, let go. They have a first option to buy him back. It wouldn't be a surprise if he came back to Chelsea in the future. Hudson Odoi. I'm sure if they've got anything about them, there'll be a clause in a contract if he leaves, saying we'd have first option again. These people could come back to Chelsea potentially if they're good enough. Mm, well, they're, they're struggling for goals. They're struggling up front anyway. Uh, you've got Tammy Abraham. You know, it looks like with a loan and an £18 million move to, to Wolves, surely if they are going to be true to their academy, someone like Tammy Abraham deserves a chance, doesn't he? I, I, I don't think he's good enough for, for Chelsea, to start for Chelsea. He might well be, given that they have a problem at the moment and he could be recalled from a loan until the summer as a, on a kind of emergency fill-in basis, perhaps, but I don't... I don't think he's the long-term answer for them and I don't think Chelsea really consider him as to be the long-term answer for them. Chelsea don't put crosses into the box. No. Tommy Abraham needs crosses into the box. I think he, he is probably, and it's an incredibly damning thing to say when he's 21 years older, but he, he seems like the sort of player who will do a job for a bottom-half Premier League team, will score maybe 10 to 12 goals a season, but isn't quite at the level to lead Chelsea line because I think if he was at that level, he would already be involved in that setup, a la Loftus-Cheek, who... Is still there and is now starting to get games, but um, but yeah, they are struggling to score goals. And, and this this Eden Hazard false nine plan is seems to work for Mauricio Sarri, but doesn't seem to work for every player in that system, particularly Eden Hazard, who three months ago was calling Olivier Giroud the best target man in world football as a pretty obvious message that he liked playing with him. Mm. Has since seen Alvaro Morata drop further from the radar, and yet. Has, has almost become the Olivier Giroud plan himself in that he's now playing a centre-forward and I think he'd probably prefer to play out as long as he could play out on the left and be allowed to stay high at the pitch. I think that would always be Hazard's first choice. And he's never been shy of discussing the Real Madrid possibility and if, if Chelsea want to keep him, it would be a good idea to keep him happy, I suspect. Yeah, it looks you know, pretty much like that Morata will leave. You know, Seville have been linked, haven't they? Um, also, interestingly, Hervin Lozano, the uh, PSV Mexican winger. Can you see that working? Well, Chelsea do need wingers because, they, I mean, Pedro and William are in their 30s and contracts expire in 
2020, I believe. Hudson Adoy is obviously 2020 as well, and likely to leave sooner rather than later. Um, but whether those guys are able to play the style that Sari wants them to, I, I, no one knows. Um, Sari is start, starting to make the noise, same noises that Antonio Conte did in terms of stra- transfer strategy. There is a that's a club that's operating without a director of football. Marina Granovskaya is doing a lot of the negotiations. They've got a recruitment department that is quite extensive, but it's hard to know who sort of heads it at the moment. You know, is it Marina? Is it is it Scott McLachlan? Is it is it where do, where do people go if they want to get a player to Chelsea? And I think that that level of confusion is is now being shown in, in actual transfer policy and strategy. Um, and Sari is starting to reflect that. All the teething trouble that he warned was going to happen at Chelsea when he came in, and we were hoodwinked in that first three months of the season when they were fantastic. Well, it's now being exposed. It's, they're not right. Um, and they'll have the occasional game, which will be fantastic, such as their second-half performance against Manchester City. But they'll also have games where they look dysfunctional and they struggle, and Southampton was a, a case in point. Leicester City was a case in point. They failed to score in their previous two home games in the league. It's um, it's not a happy camp, and they're basically clawing for that top four place, and they, they need to hang on in there as much, as long as they can. Tom's point is it's bang on because the one aspect watching Sarri's Napoli that you'd say is that it had his fingerprints all over that squad, but. Being able to do that when you haven't got control, necessarily control over transfers. You know, Sarri said, you know, they asked me about Pulisic a month ago and I told them my opinion, but I didn't know the move was going to happen. Now, it's very hard for a manager to have his fingerprints all over the, all over the team and all over the style if players are coming in where he, he, he doesn't necessarily know from one week to the next what's going to happen in that department. I'm sure he said that pointedly. We know he's done that in the past. He's not shy about, you know, saying what he thinks in those sort of situations. And... As you said, on that, that was such a clear message of, well, hang on a minute. Um, yeah, this guy's come in, but if this doesn't work out, it's not on me. Yeah. Mm. You know, to be entirely honest, under Mourinho, we'd we pretty much written off Manchester United as a top four force, this season at least. Um, it's all sweetness and light now. It's four matches, 14 goals, 40 million smiles. Um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, is he making a case, or can he make a case to stay on after the summer? Oh, he can, but let's just see what happens when they play someone good. I mean, <laughs> it's, look, I mean, I don't want to. That sounds terrible for the te- the four teams that they've beaten already. But the reality is that was a nice time to take over, and he has made an impact. He's brought some positivity back. He's he has taken the shackles off. That that team do look as if they're enjoying themselves again. We can't deny any of that, but. Okay, let's see how they do it at Spurs. Let's see, let's see whether they can perform with the same abandon and, and, and incision at Spurs as they have done, you know, in, in dismantling Newcastle, Cardiff, etc., etc., Huddersfield Town. I mean, these aren't these aren't you know particularly impressive teams that they've been overcoming. Um, it's, it's it is refreshing to see the smiles back on the faces, and it's inevitable that now he's. You know, coming out saying, I don't want to leave, I don't want to leave. Well, carry on doing the best job you can and we'll see where we are in April, May time. But 
they're going to be some sterner tests ahead than mm. the, do you, do you sense the welcoming arm of, of Fergie on the shoulder? I think it was a, 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 for a man in Edward Wood who has kind of been incompetent as standard, it was a, a very clever PR move. And it was, a, it was a PR move that we didn't really see coming. You know, they announced that it would be someone with history at the club. But even at that point, no one really had the name of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer on the, you know, on the tip of the tongue. Um, I actually, bizarrely, the more games he wins, particularly against lesser sides who they dispatch with more goals and more attacking prowess than they were before, I almost think he, he talks himself out of the job because that's what he was brought in to do. He was brought in mm. to give a temporary lift, to recharge the place, to revitalise the place, so that someone could, could come in with a, a truly, not just a blank canvas, but also with a squad that was ready to move forward rather than having to have this period of rehabilitation post Jose Mourinho. So I, I think he's doing exactly what was asked of him, but that doesn't mean he's necessarily going to get the full-time job because when push comes to shove, his managerial aptitude has been questioned in the past far more than it's been proven, I think that's fair to say it. But Mulder and at Cardiff. Um, so, no, he, he's doing exactly the right thing. And, and the difference in players, I, I think we has shown, is that he's... He's got an eye for detail and an eye for looking, you know, an arm around the shoulder that maybe Mourinho lost in his latter days there. Someone like Marcus Rashford who says, you know, he's telling me to pass the ball into the goal and we have mm. sessions where I pass the ball in and then he does exactly that one or two games later. That's great. Mm. But that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be Manchester United's long-term <laughs> manager, I don't think. Mm. Who realistically has got a chance of becoming that manager? Um, you know, Marco Rose from Red Bull Salzburg has been mentioned. You're needing to get someone of, of huge stature, you know, by definition, for a job like that. Yeah. We mentioned Pochettino earlier. The, 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 I'd be amazed if they didn't target him. Um, they, they should be going for somebody who is a long-term appointment. I mean, not, we're not talking Fergie length of time, but <laughs> just, you know, more than two Five years. years would be good. Mm. <laughs> it was... Because it is a, it's still a rebuilding job. As much as they spent loads of money um, under Mourinho, um, they're still playing a, a huge game of catch-up mm. with City, with Liverpool, with Spurs. Um, and the, the danger is they're even falling behind. They, they could, this season, have fallen behind, say, an Arsenal in terms of that game of catch-up. But, you know, maybe Solskjaer will lift them to a and remind the players of how good they actually are, they've got. Yeah, this might offend a few sensibilities, but do they need to find their Klopp? Well, yeah, there are a few clubs out there that need to find <laughs> Klopp, but yeah, yeah, I mean, that would... Yes, yes, you're right, that sort of ilk. We're talking somebody who can... Yeah, who has you know, that revitalising effect on the players who are there, but also is looking long-term, will be prepared to make ruthless decisions on, on who will take the club forward and who will take his team forward and has a long-term vision as to what they want to be. Um, but we could have said that about Manchester United in the latter years of Fergie's tenure, or the, you know, certainly when Moyes and Van Gaal were there. I mean, Solskjaer's doing the kind of clop light stuff of the saying the right things, yeah. you know, looking the right way, smiling in the right places. It's whether he's got that, you know, Klopp's grinning demeanour actually covers a fairly, yeah. you know... Hard very man. Yeah, and an entrenched mm. coaching and tactical system that, um, you know, is pretty all-encompassing. It goes a lot beyond mm. smiles and giggles and arms by the shoulder. The question is whether Solskjaer's got that depth, and I don't, I don't believe he has, actually. That's just how it is. But 
Yeah, if they can find a manager who can bring everyone together and put smiles on faces and have that tactical depth, then you've got your Klopp. Um, whether or not, I, I honestly don't necessarily believe that's anyone but Pochettino. If they fail to attract him, then I think there's a you know there's not many names there. Zinedine Zidane is such a leap yeah. in the other direction yeah. and such a short-termist appointment that I don't see that working. And after that, you know, you say like names like Marco Rosa, who just I mean, that sounds like they are looking around for a new Klopp, doesn't it? You know, they're looking in Germany, he's played for Mainz, played under Klopp, played under Tuchel before. Just sounds like it's exactly what they're doing. Mm. I mean, you can't have a short-term solution. You know, that squad is, is, is made up from, by, by players who have joined under different managers. I mean, throughout, it's, it's a mishmash of a, of a squad of different styles that the manager at the time has wanted to pursue. It needs someone to come in and work out where they want to be long term and, and make ruthless decisions, you know, along those lines. And Zidane would, just wouldn't work in that scenario, would it? Are Arsenal at that point in time now? Yeah. Enemy's had time to bed in. He's seen, you know, frankly, what is a disaster area of defence exposed. Mm. You've got the arm wrestle over Meza Ozil. Very interesting that the agent came out, um, which is usually a surefire sign that something's going wrong somewhere. Um, what does he need to do to impose himself on that club? I think he's probably got one of the most difficult jobs in the Premier League because um, I don't. we talk about Manchester United playing catch-up. Arsenal are doing that even more. Mm-hmm. Um, they were allowed to decline even further under Arsene Wenger than Manchester United were under Jose Mourinho. And they don't have the budgets to spend as quickly um, uh, or spend as thoroughly or as extravagantly as Manchester United or Liverpool or Manchester City or Chelsea or, and Tottenham have, a, have an infinitely better first team and arguably a deeper squad, even despite how thin it is. So, yeah, I think he has a huge, huge task on his plate because I think not just supporters, but kind of we in general in the media are used to a strong Arsenal and therefore we're used to them being a team that will, or will want to fight for the title. And I think they're such a long way away from that now. Um, it's going to take two or three transfer windows. And the reality is that managers don't get two or three transfer windows pressure-free anymore or responsibility-free. So we're going to have to see improvements in... I mean, their defence is, is, is bottom half. That, that back four is bottom half um, of the Premier League in terms of, in terms of standard. And, yeah, it's, it's going to have to change quickly. But I, I don't think he can do that in the transfer market quickly enough to cause a... A rapid improvement. Yeah. Let's look then, when you mention bottom half, uh, at, at the relegation um, situation. You know, there's a big weekend coming up, uh, and a couple of very key fixtures. Also, you've got Newcastle at Chelsea in the BT Sport game. Now, it, it's the new year, so what have we got? It's <laughs> The fans have got an open letter to Ashley, please give us some signings. You've got uh, Benitez being... Um, let's say, evasive about his future and, and, and his commitment. Are Newcastle in danger of going down? I don't think they are. Uh, well, I'll say that wrong. I don't think they will go down. Uh, they are in danger at the moment because they're hovering just above the relegation places. But I think Benitez is still the key to them staying up um, and his ability to organise. Um, that's... It's great having a goal scorer, obviously, and that, that takes you well clear. But the club's down there, even up to 14th place. Um, and then there's a gap between Palace and Brighton, I think, at the moment. Um, all those teams, 
are down there for a reason because they lack a goal scorer largely. But the ones that can organise well steer clear. Palace have had eight clean sheets this season in the Premier League. They're just three point three four points clear of the of the the scrap. Newcastle being at the top of that one. Newcastle have that capability as well. They can knuckle down in the key fixtures, not necessarily against the best teams, but against the sort of lower mid table and the teams down the foot, and they can they can grind out one nil wins, nil nil draws, you know, and just keep themselves above the cutoff in that respect. He's not gonna get the massive transfer funds that he hoped. He hoped he would. Um, Newcastle as a club are no further down the line now than they were two months ago, three months ago, 15 months ago, 18 months ago. The fans will want the owner out. The manager, let's face it, he wants the owner out as well. Um, the, the, the owner himself hasn't had an offer that he's, he's prepared to go with. Um, that state of limbo is unsettling and it will eventually see Benitez leave. Tyneside. I mean, that that's will happen uh, because his ambitions will not be satisfied by just keeping Newcastle in the division. But this season, that's what he'll do. He'll keep them up. Mm. Huddersfield, eight successive defeats. They're at Cardiff. Um, is it right to assume if they lose that one, they're done for? Yeah, I think it probably is. I think, I, I think they might be done for now, actually. Um, there's six of their last... Eight games have been against the teams kind of, well, within that bottom eight in the Premier League, and they've lost every single one. Um, they painfully desperate for a goal scorer. Um, at home, they've been, they've, they've created chances, and Aaron Moy has been excellent in part, but there's just nobody to finish the chances. Joe Lolly's their second top league goal scorer at home in 2018, and he joined Forest on in January. <laughs> so you know. I think Steve Mooney has got two, uh, and Alex Pritchard's got two, and that's it. Um, so they're just, they, 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 they are absolutely desperate for goals. And the problem is, is that they are resolute defensively, and Wagner is capable of setting up a side defensively, and I think with a, with a, he, he will flourish at a higher level. But the defence is just not quite good enough individually to, to counteract the painful lack of goals. And, yeah, I think they probably are done. It should be said that... They probably have got the low with Cardiff. They've got the, should have the lowest ambitions of any Premier League team. You know, last season was the miracle. This is the reality. So it should, I hope it doesn't impact on Wagner's reputation. Are we seeing another Warnock miracle? Um, well, possibly. I mean, I think we can write off the games against the the top five or six, which clearly is what he's done as well. Um, but when you look at some of the performances his team have, have put in, limited players as well. They're not, we're not talking like proper stellar names. These, some of the defensive displays, Palace and, and uh, Leicester City over Christmas, so admirable, absolutely fantastic, and properly got stuck in. Um, they've got dashes of quality within the, within the side, but only dashes. I mean, Hoylet might be capable of the occasional... You know, great goal like he scored against Wolves early yeah. in the season. Uh, Cameron Asa, the, the midfielder, wonderful finish at Leicester, but he was excellent at Sellers Park a few days previously to that. He was he was their threat, and you chuck in the sort of commitment of a Sol Bamba, Mango, who's just been fantastic as well the last few games. Steve Morrison, who just never gives up, and the goalkeeper is a blooming revelation. Yeah. I mean, Fulham must be looking at him and wondering how the hell they let that one go. Th- let through the net because he's 
he's been superb. And, and quite often when you get a, a, a team that comes up who are going to be punching above the weight, their goalkeeper does tend to stand out because he's the busiest mm. keeper in the division. Um, David Marshall did it at, at Cardiff last time. Um, but Etheridge has been something else. I mean, he'll, he'll, he'll either... He'll say in the Premier League whatever happens to Cardiff City this season. Mm. Fulham at Burnley. Um, let's talk about goalkeepers, shall we? Mm. Tom Heaton has come in. Um, right decision at the right time? Yeah, and a, a pretty brave decision from Sean Dyche. You could argue that he cycled through all of his other options and I think he actually said that himself. He said, we've tried everything else and there comes a point where you have to change your goalkeeper. And... Um, and Tom Heaton has kept two clean sheets on the bounce, I think. So he's... Um, they conceded one at Huddersfield. Oh, uh, yeah, of yeah, course. Was, yeah. Um, play well. But, yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing with Burnley is that for the first half of the season, they've con- they conceded shots at a rate like we've never seen before in the yeah. Premier League. They were abject. But we know they can do it. We mm. know that, basically, these set of defenders have and goalkeeper have done this before. They forgot how to play like Burnley. Yeah, yeah. they did. They... they I said at the start of the season, we need to. We're in a really difficult position because people want more and more of us. But if we, the moment we tr- try and change the way we play, we effectively revert back to promoted team again because yeah. that's we're doing something completely new. And and what we did got us promoted. So he's in a very difficult position without further investment to do anything more than that. And yeah, I think they will be fine because they will kind of revert back to what they know. Mm. Just want to um, almost go back to where we started. Uh, a couple of questions from the listeners and the viewers. Uh, Stefan Adams. Who do you think is the most underrated player in the Premier League? I think Son at Spurs, but Bernardo Silva goes under the radar, in my opinion. Um, is it possible to be underrated if you play for Tottenham Hotspur or Manchester City? I, I don't know. I mean, both of those players are fantastic. and We've mentioned Bernardo Silva, who was a man possessed um, against Liverpool. Son, is, Son went from a player who misses a load of chances to a player who takes a load of chances over, almost overnight both fantastic players but I, I, I wouldn't say that either of them are underrated I think if you're talking about an underrated player just pluck one out, out of the ether um, <laughs> that's I mean, you've got, you, you're basically asking for a name that no one's talking about think, yeah the only I'd say that Aaron Moyer uh, Moy, yeah. yeah, Moy, Moy they're missing him and they're going to miss him for yeah. a, a long period and, and that, that could be I think the, the key. Brighton centre-backs yeah. have been absolutely excellent I know I know Shane Duffy does play for Ireland and did receive an England call-up. Um, but, yeah, I think they've been probably two of the best centre-backs. great shout actually. that because everybody focuses on Dunk, yeah. um, uh, that sort of homegrown talent who, who's, who's done well. But, but Duffy gets sent off against Palace. The next three games, they get exposed defensively very, very badly. Comes back in, immediately pick up results again. And he, that, that, that does tell you. I mean, it only is about combinations. You're right, centre-half. Um, I, I, I have to. I have to say, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, though, don't I? I mean, that's like a rule. <laughs> Aaron Wan-Bissaka is an absolute revelation uh, at right back. He was playing as a winger 14 months ago and, and hadn't played a Premier League game this time last year. Right. Well, time's run away with us. Just a final question: Who's going to win the league, Premier League? <laughs> I'm going to let Don say one. I'm going to say that's how it's going to go. I, I said Manchester City all season, and um, I'll stick with them. Liverpool then. Good man. Well, I'll call it a draw. <laughs> Liverpool win the Premier League, City win the Champions League. Honours even? Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.